Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. On this week's episode... We're going to be talking about feeding the feed, how out-of-home advertising impacts social media newsfeed. Why Americans are behind on their PTO days. And which companies are winning the inventory wars. All that coming up next on America This Week. Hey, Libby, how are you? I'm great, John. How you doing? I'm doing great on a Friday. I'm uh, excited to get into these topics. Why don't you uh, tell some new listeners a little bit about our show? Yeah, sure. So if you're a new listener, our podcast aims to bring American society into the boardroom, highlighting the emerging needs and desires bubbling to the top. So business leaders, but really anyone who's curious, are better prepared to navigate towards the future. So I guess if you're a little bit of a data junkie, you feel like to kind of dig into the polls a little bit and try to see what's going on out in the world. Maybe That's right. Place for you. All right. <laughs> well, hey, listen, let's just get into it. Uh, first as usual, we always have three numbers of the week. We call them our weekly heat. And Libby, we have a really interesting area this week where anxious Americans are really speaking out. These anxious Americans are 26 to 41 years old, a.k.a. millennials. We find that uh, 76% of millennials are worried about a potential U.S. recession. 73% of them are worried about affording their living expenses. And 53% of these millennials are also now worried about losing their job. Libby, we talked a little bit last week about care-strapped and sandwiched millennials. Now their finances are seemingly under the microscope and in disarray. What do you think gives here? Yeah, these are, you know, money's on the mind of millennials. Um, <laughs> majority of them are are really worried about this. And look, they're at this financial peak of responsibilities. First-time home buyers, young families, taking care of older parents, building towards retirement. Yet at the same time, they're still being weighed down by student loans, rising childcare costs, rising home costs, groceries, gas. It's just raining down on them in their ability to establish financial stability. Yeah, they are going to be a, a really interesting target audience here as you look at the midterm elections coming up. In fact, we're releasing Lydia Harris Poll, Harvard Harris Poll study uh, later today, and we'll share some details on that next week. Great. Uh, good stuff. Yeah, so let's get in and jump into the first of our three stories. The first story we're going to talk about, as we mentioned at the top, is how out-of-home advertising actually impacts your social media news feed. So, Libby... When you think of outdoor advertising, what do you think of? Uh, billboards, John. <laughs> like rolling down the road, seeing those billboards. Yeah. Well, you know what's really interesting is the medium has changed a ton, and it's coming full circle into American social feeds. We see a, a lot of innovation in this space, right? First of all, out of home has gone digital with video to create immersive VR and AR experiences. And so if you start to think about just walking around or you're in airports or on, you're taking a bus, or you're in subways, you're, you're moving around, you're probably seeing a lot of outdoor video screens. You may be seeing projections on the sides of buildings. There's just some fascinating new sort of, you know, immersive experiences that are happening. And because of all this, in a new Harris Poll AAA survey, we found that out of home is actually finding a second life on social media. In fact, mm. eight in 10 Libby TikTok users said they notice out-of-home ads in their social feeds frequently with similar numbers on other platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Snap, and Twitter. But the other part of this is that nearly three-quarters of these social media users said they would likely post or reshare these types of out-of-home 
creative elements uh, on their platforms. I just am really curious, Libby, what else you're kind of seeing here. Well, I think what's fascinating about that as well is you're starting to see celebrities do a lot of posting of their own at-a-home ads. And if you want a term to feel current with your you know, Gen Z teens or nieces, I've heard the latest one is valid, which means that it's the new term for legit. So celebrities are making themselves valid. I'm not sure if I'm putting that in the right context, <laughs> <laughs> but to, um, to, to take their out of home billboards and post them on Instagram. And that's what people are sharing as well. So for example, Cardi B posted her billboard of Balenciaga on Instagram, Billie Eilish posted her out-of-home ad from Times Square on Instagram. And these are getting millions of likes and shares. And it's just it's just creating that, that social fuel. I think what's fascinating about this, Libby, too, is that you would not really think about a creative brief where you were starting to work on out-of-home, you know, kind of imagining it would end up in, in, in an Instagram feed. And I think that's also sort of reflected here in the data. We found that nearly half of social media users engage with out-of-home ads that they see in their social feeds. So they're taking some kind of action, right? Like yeah. you know, visiting a company's website and, and so forth. But when you sort of step back, Libby, as, as a marketer and you're thinking about these issues, like how should marketers be accounting for this dynamic? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think you got to think about the context. So people today are either looking down at their phones or looking around, right? It's like, so when are you hitting them? Are you hitting them when they're looking down? Or are you hitting them when they're looking around? And so um, when they're out and about looking to explore and experience, use that to your advantage. It sounds like out of home from this research is a big key factor to creating social worthy snaps and experiences to then re-engage into a feed and make sure uh, the important part of that is also is to make sure that it's simple enough to act on. So when you see it in a feed, then you can share it or go and, and search for it. Um, but it's just so interesting that it's become this circular kind of economy to use as social fuel. So thinking about the marketing creative brief a little bit differently, that out of home is a part of the social media campaign brief I don't think is is pretty is common now, but it really should be in the future. And John, right. yeah. yeah, you also mentioned that there's um, interesting opportunities for out of home too with the advancement of technology. There's so much Libby here. I mean, one of the really, really kind of partnerships I think to look at is what Google is doing with JD Decau. So mm. they're a global French out of home company. I think they're the, possibly the largest in the world. But those two are, are working together to devise a new outdoor digital network that's actually powered by AI and robotics. Mm. And the benefit <laughs> of that is it's going to allow them to analyze data much more frequently. And that, in turn, would allow them to do kind of really, you know, sort of amazing things like change ads in real time, you know, based on a wide range of factors. So you could imagine environmental design changing around the weather or nearby events. So it can become sort of either highly targeted or, or highly topical. And Libby, I put into the feed a really fascinating sort of uh, immersive AR, VR experience uh, in a restaurant called Le, P Le Petit Cafe, mm -hmm. which basically, if you look at the tabletops, you have um, sort of young children being immersed with um, a, a visual mosaic of farmers taking plates of food 
and mm. putting them actually onto their plate. Uh, oh, that's so cool. So when we talk about distracting your little kids. That could be pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm going to Le Petit Cafe. Is it in Paris or New York? That's a good question. I've got to check it out. Okay, but, um, I'll, I'll gonna, find out and get back to you. <laughs> I'm going to get your guys there. So uh, let's talk about the palate cleanser. We've got a yeah. number of the week that makes us, we say, laugh, learn, or lean in. Libby, what do we have? Yeah, so John, guess how many American workers say they have planned to take more vacation by this time of the year than actually have taken that vacation? Huh, that's interesting. I would suggest or think that that number is pretty low, that this is the end of the year. People be trying to make sure they do down their days. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> it's over half of American workers really? are behind on taking the days off that they've either earned or qualified for. And I think what was really interesting about this data is when we looked into it, it's actually remote workers leading that charge. So 66% or two-thirds of remote workers aren't taking the PTO that they've earned or qualified for. Um, and that's just, it's just kind of surprising. Um, you know, hybrid workers and office workers are much more likely to be, have, have taken that vacation. And so we looked at just overall what's happening. You know, why aren't people taking vacation? Is it guilt or is it supervisors? And it looks like guilt leads. And primarily that's because over half of workers say they feel guilty about taking time off because of staff shortages. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that's a challenge. And then not all managers are making it easy either. Nearly four in 10 of employees say it's difficult to get time off at their companies. So that's also challenging, right? It's like, we're not taking the time off. We're feeling guilty about it. Um, and managers aren't necessarily making it easy. I think the takeaway here, John, as a palate cleanser is historically, Americans have always been bad at taking vacation. This isn't exactly new news. Um, I remember running into the CFO of Virgin Airlines who was bewildered by his team in the U.S. who only took Fridays and kind of snuck out of the office in these three-day weekend getaways instead of actually taking real vacation the way Europeans do. Um, and But what I'm more surprised by is that was our hustle hard culture. But now there's this cultural context of backlash, right? Quiet quitting, anti-hustle culture, all of these things are happening because we're so burnt out in the workplace, yet we still aren't taking vacation. John, why do you think that's happening? What should companies be doing about it? Wow. I think first off, you got to, as a leader, you have to legislate leisure. Like you've got to set a culture. Ooh. You know, we, we talk about famously about bringing our whole selves to work, right? Well, our whole selves can get pretty stressed out as we talked about at the top of the show with some of the the challenges that millennials are facing, for instance. But if you're not legislating leisure, like in France, right? Uh, give an example. We're, we're sticking on our French theme this morning. <laughs> but, um, you know, France has a mandatory 90-minute uh, lunch break. You can't eat lunch at your desk, right? Mm, and that so, sounds so you know, nice. <laughs> doesn't that sound great? Yeah. So sit there and, you know, chomp on our salad every every Friday like we like to. But, you know, I think that's interesting. And if you don't do that, you aren't creating a, a culture of permissibility and allowing people to be themselves. And I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Do you remember uh, that study that, that you and I and Abby did last year with Volvo? We, we found that 62% of employed men who either had had a child in the last five years or planning to have one 
within the next five years, believed that there was basically a norm that men should not take paternity leave. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like incredible, right? At, at two thirds, this is 2022, this is 2021 rather when this mm-hmm. came out. And then nearly seven in 10 said it was a badge of honor to take as little or time off uh, after birth as possible. I, I mean, those numbers are just staggering, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, the badge of honor, I don't think is just around men either. I think it's it's really across the workforce. Like you'll hear people all the time saying, I'm so busy. It's a badge of honor. I never took any vacation this summer. It's a badge of honor. So we really have to right the ship, you know, around wellness versus productivity in that way to probably create a more sustainable workforce. Absolutely. And I, I thought with all of the disruption happening in the work, right, you, you hit those numbers at the top. It was, I thought, telling that two-thirds of remote workers were the ones that were most tardy on their, their PTO, you know, is that FOMO, is that disconnection from, you know, wanting to sort of stay vibrant and, and sort of connected to their company so they feel like they got to log on. Yeah. I mean, there's really, this is just pure leadership right? Mm-hmm. This has got to be setting the tone and not to scratch ourselves on the back, but uh, you kind of <laughs> shut the office down last year, right? Everybody was like basically breaking it at the seams and, and we took a, a mandatory week off in July and Libby, I can't tell you how many people reached out to me. I think it was, it was really interesting. Yeah. It, you know why that is so helpful? Um, we call it a trend called we boundaries, where companies create these boundaries for their employees and just make it mandatory, whether it's time off or emails that you can't check anymore. And what makes it so helpful is that the organization has to stop. So even if you're sitting on the beach, you're not going to get pinged. You're not going to get a missed client obligation or anything like that. So it really lets you finally unwind in that way. And because we don't have it from a societal point of view, we're not as relaxed as, you know, the Europeans and their summers in August. It's, it really almost has to come from that organizational structure and saying, to your point, legislating for leisure. I love that. That's such a smart idea. Well, let's talk lastly in our last story about this inventory wars. So Libby, let's go back to good times, right? Remember 2019? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, 2019. Seems like it was yesterday, right? We were kind of in this era of low interest rates, right? Money was cheap. Supply chains were reliable and efficient. They would perform on time. And consumer demand was sort of relatively stable. And, uh, you know, of course, that was famously before we hoarded uh, toilet paper and stopped buying pants during (laughs) COVID. But, um, you know, I think back at that time, companies could sort of theoretically still do a pretty good job maximizing earnings, even if they misread some of the market shifts that were happening. But COVID really changed that, right? You know, you you have now today, even a slight miscalculation in a forecast can be ruinous. Yeah. I mean, look at Peloton, right? Peloton went from COVID darling to the new CEO saying last week that it had six months to determine if they are viable as an independent company. And they're temporarily halting production of its connected fitness products as consumer demand wanes and the company looks to control costs. And that has faced significant reduction around the world due to shoppers' price sensitivity and amplified competitor activity. So just things that weren't on their radar earlier enough. Exactly. And then what was interesting this week is that Macy's basically 
really reported some profoundly strong numbers in inventory management, right? Yeah, it's really interesting if you look at the Macy's story, they have avoided the worst of the glut of goods that has tripped up so many retailers in the last quarter. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that Macy's inventory was up 7%, and that's only 7% in the most recent quarter compared to the year earlier. Contrast that by 48% in Kohl's, 44% in Nike, 37% in Gap. What do those numbers mean? They mean that those brands have way too much inventory and maybe there'll be some good holiday sales. Hmm. But you know, it, it's not good for the retailers to have 44, 48% of extra inventory left. And the way that Macy's executives were able to get to only 7% over inventory is because earlier this year, they started noticing shifts in the market starting to happen and they acted on it. And they noticed these shifts because of the company's co-branded credit cards. So they were able to see that consumers were spending more on food and gas, that they were spending more on travel and entertainment, and they adjusted their retail inventory accordingly. Let me get that right. So basically, while they were looking at their consumer data on their credit cards, they started to make some bets and saying, hey, you know, Americans' dollars are stretched so thin. And we know that, right? We saw that this week, the consumer price index went up again at, uh, I think, at 6.6%. So you have this just inflation pressure. So basically, what, what Macy started to do is, you know, sort of make some adjustments into their inventory in a much more sort of agile way. I do think that's a real interesting part, Libby, of this maybe their success story because mm -hmm. they, to me, they feel like what they're doing is they've got their marketing, their insights moving lockstep with their, their inventory management. And, you know, I think if we play this out, you know, we released some, some new data uh, when we looked at, at our forward holiday shopping uh, coming up uh, this week, and we saw some, some pretty profound things. First, we, we found that eight in 10 American consumers told us that they're prioritizing saving and staying within their budget because mm -hmm. of rising inflation. And then also we found that eight in 10 holiday shoppers at 83% said they'll be adjusting their shopping to account for inflation with almost half of them setting a budget this year and sticking to this season. So I think if you play that out, you got to really, as a marketer, think about where these consumer discretionary dollars are going, right? So for instance, one of the other things, Libby, that we did in this survey is we asked, in what part of your daily life do you feel most affected by inflation? And what they came back with is it's gas at 74% mm -hmm. and groceries at 70%. But Libby, that was nearly double of any other consumable, right? These are the two things that are just basically chomping America's budgets. And so we asked, were you cutting back? And two thirds of them said in retail, seven in 10 said eating out, mm -hmm. and eight in 10 said impulse shopping. Yeah. that so. You know, that um, not only do you look at where are they cutting back, but you want to look at the outliers and the contrarians as well. So overall, you hear from that story that Americans have tight chests and tight wallets, right? And they're cutting back. And they're cutting back in retail and eating out and impulse shopping. But what's interesting is younger Americans will keep spending on certain things like travel. For example, 44% of millennials will plan, are planning to spend more on holiday travel plans this year, 
along with their 2023 vacation plans. So this idea of volatility market or despite a a future recession, they don't care. They're willing to spend. (laughs) Right. And so I think if you apply this into practical advice for marketers, and Libby, I'd love your advice on this, is sort of, you know, if you're Delta and Hilton, maybe you're making some tactical bets on, on younger travelers right now. But if you're Macy's, as we just talked about, they might have seen this kind of data, you know, that, that people said they were going to sort of cut down on impulse shopping, 8 and 10, or they were going to kind of stop sort of just their basic retail shopping. So they made their adjustments and their inventory load is a lot lighter. Yeah. And I think the the net takeaway of that is companies really need to move marketing and inventory management more in unison. Hmm. So you have to have the data and the insights to get a faster read on consumers' finances and spending intentions resulting in these more data-driven bets on behavior. You have to start getting um, – you, you have to start understanding more where the aspirations and desires are going so that you can be quick thinking, that you can move things faster, and that you don't get stuck in the cycle of the supply chain and actually fall victim to it. I think it's really good advice. You know, you got to have your head down in your numbers, but you also have to have your sort of eyes up out into society in the marketplace, right? Absolutely. Great. Hey, Libby, it was so good to talk to you. This was a lot of fun as always. And um, we wanted to thank our listeners for joining our show this week. Hey, do us a favor. If you've got a polling idea, um, send it to us at atw at harrispoll.com. And as always, we'd appreciate if you'd leave us a review or a rating. If you like the show, it helps other people find it. But um, I think let's sign off on that point, right, Libby? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, John. Have a great weekend, everyone.